It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. This week, we have a tale of three cities, which is also a tale about winning and losing in a world economy in flux. And why sometimes it can be difficult to tell the difference. Take San Francisco. It looks for all the world like a loser from post-COVID work habits. A big chunk of its workforce hasn't returned to the city centre. and Financially and socially, it's in dire straits. But the San Francisco area is also at the centre of the global AI boom. And for large parts of the US tech fraternity, really the only part of the world you'd want to live. So it's complicated. California Bureau Chief Karen Breslow and Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox are going to help me make sense of it all in a few minutes. We also have a great piece from senior Asia economy reporter Michelle Jamrisco in Singapore, a city that has benefited enormously from the economic and political shifts of the past few years, but where long-term residents now struggle to afford a drink. But we're going to start with a cautionary tale from Dubai, which on paper at least looks like one of the big winners from the invasion of Ukraine last year and all the geopolitical events that have unfolded since then. But if you're living in Dubai, there's definitely been some downsides to this influx of people and wealth that's followed that invasion. I'm going to have a quick chat with Manus Cranny, distinguished longtime anchor for Bloomberg, who's been based in Dubai for a while. Manus, thanks for joining us. I guess I should start by just asking you to paint a bit of a picture. I, I have been there a couple of times in the last year, and I can certainly see people complaining about there being no Rolex shop watches left <laughs> left in the stores because of the Russians arriving. But you know, what's it been like to be there? High class problems. Stephanie, good to be with you. <laughs> and there are many. I, I mean, I can tell you there is a, a palpable change in this city, how we live, what we spend to live, how we get around in the past year, year and a half. And this acceleration began before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
in terms of rent prices, congestion, tough to get an Uber, price gouging by Uber. Why, Stephanie? Because post-COVID, you saw this huge influx of not just you know, Russian emigrants, but wealthy Europeans beginning to look at the value differential per square foot here in Dubai relative to the Côte d'Azur, relative to Paris, relative to Berlin, and relative to London. And it began to offer them a glimpse of six months of the year where you could live in beautiful weather um, from October through to the end of March, and you could get yourself a million-dollar pad, which you just couldn't buy in any of those cities, on the beach, overlooking the marina. And suddenly people began to look at this city in a very different way. And then the Russians came, and my gosh, <laughs> it just exploded. And of course, the main thing people talk about is is rent. And you should tell us, you'd had, you had your own experience with a rent increase, which uh, you helped to go viral. Yeah, I got a rent review through. They asked me for fifty-two percent increase year on year, to which I went, "What? You, you know, fifty-two percent?" So I got on LinkedIn. Welcome to my home. So to understand inflation is to understand the rent increase that I've just been sent. My landlord wants to raise my rent by fifty-six percent. Yeah. 56 and I talked about this is what happens when cities get greedy and landlords get greedy you want to understand the definition of greed then that is the very personification of it and all I can say is you know the implosion of an economy and a city uh, is driven by the lunacy that is greed I'm really rather vexed, one could say. Now, through, I wouldn't say any great negotiation skill, but I would (laughs) say through, you know, blunt hammer approach, I ended up offering 32% of a rent increase. And they accepted that. They wanted to keep me as a long-term tenant. We toed and froed over a couple of prices. But I chose to pay the extra because the stock and inventory of equivalent properties available in the area where I want to live was very, very limited. And I should add, I, Stephanie, you know where the office is here. We're in the heart of the DIFC, the heart of Dubai Financial District. And I live very close. I'm very privileged to live four minutes away in an Uber (laughs) and a 15-minute walk. Yes, I walk home from work. Uh, When it's it's not... But it's good weather. Five degrees heat, um, but uh, yeah, you have to keep that keep that quiet um, because everyone else living in big cities will hate you for that uh, four minute commute. But uh, I have heard some 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 horror stories about rent. I mean, is this was this typical of the experience of, of other people, uh, friends of yours, colleagues in Dubai? I got away lightly. If you can call a 32% uh, hike, uh, getting away lightly. Lots of friends have been through different scenarios. One, you're given a notice to quit because the landlord says, we're going to come back in and live in the property. They don't. They simply get you to vacate. They are then able to raise the rent by an even bigger proportion. Uh, The second thing that they do is think of Dubai as a concentric circle, Stephanie. Inside the middle, there's the DIFC where there is no rent regulation whatsoever. And then you go outside of that and you have a whole other area of Dubai, which is ruled by a regulatory body called RERA. So me, the tenant, can go to the regulatory body, challenge the rent rise, and to a certain extent, it will be enforced because Dubai still wants want people to come from London, from Madrid, from all around Europe and the United States of America. So they're conscious 
of this housing cost. And I got quite a few calls and, and responses to the video that I put on LinkedIn in, in terms of, you know, uh, just an overall response from a variety of levels uh, of organizations in the city. We're going to talk more broadly in this show about the way that cities have handled economic success and the the problems it can sow for the future if you don't handle it well. I mean, housing comes very high on the list if you start to make it difficult for people to not write at the upper end of the income scale uh, to to live comfortably in in that city. When we think of Dubai, we think of of construction and you know building apartment buildings and other things going up very quickly. Is it something that they're responding to effectively? Do you think this? In, are they handling this success well? I think they are even shocked by the level of success that they have had. And in terms of the risk, the risk is this: is that you price out the very sort of typical expatriate family that might come to live here or, you know, the the kind of construct, two parents and a couple of kids. I'm just looking at some stats. The average rent for a villa, a family home, jumped by 26% last year. That's $80,000. Okay, that's according to CBRE. The average apartment rent went up by 28%. They are conscious they need to deliver more supply. And that supply is coming, like they have a bit of a desert that they can build into. So they they are extending the the, growth growth of Dubai in a variety of directions, both along the coastline, and there's some big prime new projects coming on board there that were perhaps, you know, dumped in in the post-financial crisis. And they are building lots of smaller family units, smaller apartments, which are affordable. It just means you need to move further out. You won't get a four-minute commute. You move further out. You can get a consider. you can get a less rent. I don't know about considerably less rent, but you can get a much more competitive rent in a lot of various, uh, let's say, family constructs, apartment constructs around the periphery of the city. And that is the growth of a city, isn't it? The question is the infrastructure. Is it there to support that? And that's perhaps the bit that's lagging. And I'm sure your colleagues at Bloomberg will be delighted for you having given chapter and verse to senior management at Bloomberg on why they need a bigger pay rise at the end of this year. (laughs) Um, I'm going to let you go in a minute, Manus, but I know you're about to relocate to New York. Do you think it's going to be any better there? Stephanie, I can tell you this. I've done a lot of steps in New York last week, 14,000, 15,000 steps a day. So first of all, to give you some perspective, I'm very fortunate I live in about 1,500, 1,600 square feet. Somebody said to me, yeah, which part of this not tra- happen. Yeah, which part of this trade have I given great thought to? 40% tax to pay 50% more rent to live in 50% smaller apartment. <laughs> it's not quite as drastic as that, but I can tell you, having walked around a lot of property in New York last week, I'm going to be living in a heck of a smaller apartment. And I reckon I'm going to be up another 15% to live in 50% smaller apartment. Well... You did have it relatively easy for a few years, yes, as you've already admitted. But thank you very much, Benis. And you've you've introduced actually something which we're going to be talking about now, which is you know maybe a, a city that's a bit further down this road and actually is not making it easy for middle class ordinary families to live. These people aren't just rich; they're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> When the international blockbuster Crazy Rich Asians was released in 2018, Singapore's Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loon laughed at the impression the movie brought on the city-state. Crazy Rich Asians have nothing to do with us. (laughs) We don't live like that. And I think it would be disastrous if Singaporeans get the idea that that is the way we ought to live. 
Well, that kind of jinxed it. Five years and one global pandemic later, a huge influx of wealth, a lot of it from China, has made Singapore a playground for the rich and crazy expensive for everyone else. Singapore's core inflation in April held firm at 5%. Singapore has been ranked the most expensive city to live in over and over and over again. Everything is expensive. <laughs> Cars, um, housing, I think food is also rising in comparison, I would say. Yeah, so much does property cost in Singapore? Like one million. Five bedroom house. $408 million. You can see the stresses, especially in rents. Yes, I mean, the, the rental market was still continuing its crazy upward uh, spiral from the beginning of the year. Juliet Stannard of City Prop Property, who's been a Singapore real estate agent for 23 years. Still a lot of um, expats coming in from uh, Hong Kong and a lot of uh, mainland Chinese coming in from Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, uh, and a lot of locals still were having to rent. As Chinese President Xi Jinping pushes common prosperity at home, the most prosperous Chinese are looking to protect their cash. They're pouring it into assets beyond their borders, and that accelerated with the end of China's COVID-0 policies and resumption of travel. A lot of that money has ended up here in Singapore, the number of family investment offices nearly tripled over the past two years. And just recently, the city climbed ranks into the top five most expensive cities in the world and the most expensive for luxury living, by some estimates. Unlike other major cities, rents didn't drop in the COVID era. They've only gotten worse. One measure shows condo rents surged more than 30% in the first quarter compared to the same period a year earlier. That's the fastest pace in 15 years. Expiring leases become a source of stress as it's not uncommon for landlords to demand double or more upon renewal. Under the pressure, real estate agents are seeing an outflow, especially of middle-class foreigners who simply can't afford Singapore anymore. Um, so there's been a lot of remigration out of Singapore back to other parts of Asia, um, specifically a lot of Hong Kong expats who came in last year um, quite a few, quite a number are going back to Hong Kong because they're kind of comparing the prices with Hong Kong prices and, and, you know, there's actually not much difference now. And then there's a lot of people who are leaving Singapore and going to places like, you know, Bali or JB or uh, Vietnam, um, Thailand, because it's, it's so much cheaper. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are rethinking their plans and having to leave Singapore now. It's not just the housing market getting squeezed. The food and beverage industry, a.k.a. Singapore's pride and joy, is also seeing a hollowing out in the middle market. Michelin star chef Michael Wilson told me that he added a steak entree to his menu for 88 Sing dollars, or about 66 U.S. dollars, just to test the range of prices customers were willing to pay. That's more than twice the cost of any other entree he had on offer. In the first weekend on the menu, they ran out of steaks. Besides the influx of new cash, the government's labor policies aren't helping either. In 2021, Singapore tightened hiring quotas, limiting foreigners to 35% or less of staff and services jobs. This year, they raised the minimum salaries for local employees in food and beverage roles. Michael Callahan is the owner of Barbary Coast Bar. 
He told me this is all making for a very complicated calculus. Because we're seeing actually where we saw the inability to afford new staff, now we're seeing the inability to retain our current staff. A lot of restaurant owners said the quotas for hiring locals were making it unwise to hire foreign workers at all. Because when one local staffer quits, the resulting ratio could make them ineligible to stay open. Callahan warns that too many in the industry will break under the pressure and raise menu prices. That will force restaurants to cater to an even wealthier, more niche clientele. When you get to the point that you're charging $28, $29, $30 a cocktail, there isn't a lot of people that can justify going out two, three nights a week, much less four or five nights a week, um, when the single serving of a cocktail is $28 plus plus. Uh, So now you have a very, very small pie, and they're very, very much, I don't want to say too similar, but they kind of are. So what's happening now is that we're we're catering towards, well, we aren't personally, but a lot of the industry is catering towards this smaller group that have a particular tastes and that's actually reducing uh, how creative we're getting and I, and I, that's quite sad yeah I see that because it's, it's Callahan helped me understand the changes to Singapore's dining out culture but since this is an economics podcast I also turned to Seng Won Sung he's watched the shift play out over the past three decades he's an economist at CIMB private banking who follows trends in the industry as a gauge of how Singapore's broader economy is doing. I suppose I come here weekly, um, mainly just because I pretend I'm not in Singapore. (laughs) At the glass-encased flower dome, part of the popular Gardens by the Bay complex, I sat with Song. The place was buzzing with tourists on a recent weekday. Fifty years ago, when it's really about finding jobs and housing for the people, after the British left Singapore, and so FMV fairly basic uh, at that point in time, just eating and feeding as a necessity. Mm. To today, greater disposable income, especially important. Then it allows, you know, obviously, the whole range of, of uh, options. Yes. The whole range of options is getting leaner in the middle. At the bottom is Singapore's famed hawker centers, where you can get a full hot meal for just a few dollars. And those are still popular up and down the income ladder. Since 2020, they've been protected with UNESCO World Heritage status, on top of special attention they receive from the government, such as digital transformation assistance in the past few years. On the high end, like Callahan pointed out, more wealthy customers are keeping up those top-priced outlets. But in the middle, there's a real crunch. But Song says Singapore will never be a cheaper place for doing business. And the high demand also comes from Singapore's neutrality in politics. Given uh, the increased tension between China and U.S. or Western uh, government in general, mm-hmm. Singapore becomes even more of an of attraction for businesses uh, as many of them reshore and, and onshore or whatever businesses around the U.S. Singapore mm-hmm. as their Altogether, the rising costs are raising some political and socioeconomic stress. That's ahead of general elections that are due by November 2025. Officials have reassured that resumed construction will bring relief to rent soon. They've also instituted stamp duty increases, including a move in April that doubled the levy for foreigners buying residential property to 60%. 
And on Wednesday, central bank chief Ravi Menon played down the impact that cash flows into Singapore are having on inflation. Wealth inflows in Singapore into Singapore have little effect on the exchange rate, domestic inflation, property prices or car prices. The step up in inflation since late 2021 was mainly due to sharp increases in global energy and food prices and stronger domestic wage growth. The Monetary Authority of Singapore says that the inflation fight isn't over. But they do see energy and food prices slowing further and wage growth easing. Real estate agent Juliet says she's seen rents fall off a cliff in the past few weeks. So maybe a market cooldown is just around the corner. But the damage has been done. And the stereotype that crazy rich Asians projected on Singapore seems to be solidified. It'll take a long time for people to change their minds. Here's Juliet again. Um, so the perception of Singapore is that it's no longer um, a place where you can come and live relatively inexpensively. You can't save money here anymore. That's, that, that's what a lot of expats um, see. In Singapore, Michelle Jamrisco for Bloomberg News. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. <laughs> So long ago, it was San Francisco that was the great boomtown. The city benefited more than any other from the rise of Silicon Valley. Books were written about how other places in the US might learn from its example. Now, though, it's become a byword for urban decline and dysfunction, with homelessness, a fentanyl epidemic making downtown a no-go area for a big chunk of the population, and the commercial real estate market imploding. Big retail businesses are heading for the door. In fact, in recent weeks, we've seen Whole Foods, Nordstrom and the Westfield Shopping Mall all deciding to quit the city. So how did San Francisco get to this unhappy state? And are there parallels or lessons for cities elsewhere in the US? Well, I've got two excellent people here with me to speak about that. Karen Breslau, our California bureau chief, who's based in San Francisco, and Justin Fox, who's been on the programme before, a Bloomberg opinion columnist who writes about lots of interesting things, including US cities and the challenges that they're dealing with. Justin, Karen, thank you very much for talking to me. Um, Karen, there are a lot of horror stories about San Francisco doing the rounds at the moment. Just give us a sense. How bad is it day to day? It really depends where you are and who you talk to. So if you are in the downtown financial district, which is where I am right now in our Bloomberg Bureau here in San Francisco, um, it is dire. Uh, if you are a downtown landlord, if you are a downtown retailer, uh, if you are a mayor staring into you know empty city coffers, um, it is, you know, from a fiscal standpoint, obviously terrible to have uh, these giant skyscrapers with a 30% vacancy rate, you know, for the last several years due to COVID. And now um, with the tech downturn and uh, work from home, you know, becoming the norm, um, you know, you are seeing definitely this, you know, the proverbial doom loop in, in this downtown area. If you go outside of the downtown, 
um, into neighborhoods, um, I think you see a more vibrant, alive San Francisco. And the city is also um, undergoing an AI boom, right? So a lot of a lot of AI startups are here. Uh, uh, but these, you know, these are young, early stage companies. They they don't fill skyscrapers. You know, they're they're work live lofts and. Um, people's you know the the modern day version of the of the Hewlett Packard garage so um, it really is uh, it is block by block um, but the city from a fiscal standpoint and and also from morale um, it is it is unusually dire I mentioned that San Francisco had obviously become was the was the center of the previous tech booms um, of this century and I think that's what people find surprising because as you suggested it's there's success still there there's still all those startups how does that coexist with the kind of horror stories that we hear about downtown why is the city not benefiting from that continued success of parts of its economy when you think about San Francisco, um, you really have to hold more than one thought in your head at the same time. This is a city, you know, that's been through booms and busts since the gold rush. Um, it is a boom and bust town. Um, and so, uh, you know, the most, you know, recent, obviously, we, we, we have the tech crash, you know, on the heels of, of the COVID shutdowns. Um, and uh, before that, we had the dot-com boom, the dot-com bust. So, um the, the city has seen this before. The difference is, I think, really that the uh, the hybrid or work from home models have flattened out what would be a normal recovery uh, and made so much of the commercial real estate, this incredibly valuable commercial real estate in downtown San Francisco that powers you know the tax base of the city and the and the and the retail base that is all gone. San Francisco is a very small city. It's surrounded by affluent suburbs uh, where people you know come into work. The population of San Francisco is hovers around eight hundred thousand. It's not a big major city in terms of population, but the you know the commuters who come in and fill those offices uh, and spend their money uh, are are simply not here in the numbers they were before the pandemic. Mm. And when people take the sort of long view, there's kind of a range of, of culprits that people point to for how the city got to this position, which, as you say, is not is not all bad, but certainly downtown feels pretty bad. There's there's a um, one whole set of arguments that's around the tech boom itself, all the money that came in, the enormous increase in real estate values that made so much of San Francisco unaffordable. There's another set of critiques that's around sort of dysfunctional politics. And obviously that's what Republicans are doing attack ads about, you know, this is an example of of leftist politics gone amok. Um, and then, as you've mentioned, you know, there's COVID and the fact that more people have just stayed at home since the very long period of, of shutdowns um, from the pandemic. So when you think about it in your mind, um, I'm sure it's all of those things, but is there was there a sort of an original problem that in the way that that, that all that influx of enormous amount of money from 
related to Silicon Valley got got handled. I think you've really uh, laid out the the cast of of culprits <laughs> very well. Um, I would say the blame the tech bros um, storyline uh, was certainly here. What you know during the boom days, right? You had people throwing tomatoes at these big white buses that would carry uh, unlabeled, of course, unmarked buses that would that would ferry workers from San Francisco to Google and Meta and Apple. Um, and Genentech and, you know, all the big employers. Um, and they were blamed for, you know, ruining the vibe in San Francisco. Um, then, of course, dysfunctional politics. Why does this heavily democratic city in a heavily democratic state not have sufficient housing? Um, uh, there are, you know, I think, I think there is legitimate blame for, um, I would say, uh, an air of permissiveness around um, drug use, uh, which has completely gotten out of hand. I think that is legitimate criticism. And then overlying all of this, of course, is uh, the pandemic, which really exacerbated trends that were clearly in place before uh, and accelerated those trends um, and revealed you know, a, a, a society that is so deeply unequal, um, it cannot recover from COVID, uh, from the pandemic, as other uh, cities have. Well, I want to get on to the other cities in a, in, a, in a minute, but just, I guess, one last question uh, for now. Does it feel like there is a way out? Uh, I mean, as you identified, it's not just one negative storyline, but certainly downtown, that's the dominant story that's that's currently playing. Um, do, does it feel like the existing administration and the mayor has has a route out of this if only I mean, how to get hold of some money for a start right i mean there's definitely a way out of this san francisco you know <laughs> was flattened i mean this this is what the mayor london breed talks about she said okay so this is a city that was literally in smoke and ashes uh, in 1906, uh, it was it was over. It would never it would never come back uh, after the great earthquake. And she says a change in people's work habits, a change in people's retail habits, is not the end of San Francisco. I um, mean, there is definitely intellectual ferment. Uh, there's venture capital, a tremendous talent pool, major universities. All of that stays. But I think San Francisco is going to have to undergo a tremendous reimagining. Um, there's not going to be this downtown core of 30% empty skyscrapers and empty shopping malls. These buildings look like fossils of the way American cities were even you know, just a few years ago before the pandemic. Um, so I think you know, the tax base is going to have to shift away from tech. It's going to have to shift away from real estate and financial services it's going to have to shift away from retail and these these are all the things that that powered san francisco uh, as recently as the before times so will this happen on our current political cycle i think it's highly unlikely i mean we have an election year coming up uh, next year Justin, I mean, what Karen's describing, obviously, is sort of everything that we think of as being a city is going to have to be rethought. But, you know, how much is San Francisco an outlier um, in in a U.S. context? And how much is it potentially a sort of harbinger of, of problems that other cities will be starting to have? Um, I mean, it's a pretty big outlier. And, and really, and I think Karen expressed this already, it, it's, it's the working from home that has 
sort of caused all these things to come to a head. San Francisco had been struggling with all these problems for a while, and then suddenly Bay Area-based companies were the, the most gung-ho about getting people to stop coming into the office at the beginning of COVID, let it keep, keep happening forever. The one other city in the U.S. that's sort of big city that's comparable in the percentage of people that are still staying home is Washington, D.C., um, but it feels different. I, I guess like tourism has come back to Washington in a big way. So at least the streets are full of people, even though the offices are, I guess, all empty, especially the government offices. Um, so, yeah. And then the other issue is that the Bay Area public transit system, at least the Bay Area rapid transit, the biggest part of it is very much just funded by riders and to a much greater extent than most other public transit systems in the U.S. So that's undergoing all of these problems. Obviously, every major commercial district is struggling to some greater or less extent with the fact that people are coming into the office less often and and maybe they don't need all those buildings. And that's going to be a long and difficult and expensive process to figure out what to do about it. But I have not seen any place else in the U.S., except maybe Portland, Oregon, which is sort of a similar economy and has kind of some issues of its own that are even worse than San Francisco. But in general, it's unique. But it's interesting. I mean, it does. It feels a little bit like um, we're talking more now about kind of managing the long-term consequences of success and of having a certain amount of wealth come into a city or a city sort of region in a way that maybe 20, 30 years ago, we were talking about managing decline in some of these old industrial cities. I just wonder when you look at somewhere like Miami or other places that are actually starting to attract people from other parts of the country, certainly quite a lot of coming from Chicago, for example, and sort of heading south, um, are they are there things they should be looking out for things to avoid or to to try and how should they respond to that influx of money and then not have the some of the same dynamics that we've seen played out in San Francisco well the simplest answer is you build lots and lots of housing the difficulty is if you're in a coastal city that's already kind of pretty much full it's hard to do. I think it's hard to do anywhere in the world. It seems especially hard in the U.S., although I guess um, I, I get the sense that the south of England is not super easy either. Um, and and so, I mean, like Austin, Texas has had this big inflow of people and wealth and has been adding new housing at a pace just way beyond any other large metropolitan area in the U.S. And so it's going to have a lot of growing pains, and I don't know how all those people are going to get to work. Um, but maybe they'll just work from home. Uh, but but it's clear that it's these coastal cities in the U.S. have had this extreme problem, and, and California's it's been by far the most extreme in responding to new demand for housing. That that the Bay Area was creating all these jobs for the last couple decades and building very few new houses and apartments. I'm one of those people who it's all about the housing. I think. Clearly, it's other things, too. And right now, a lot of the focus is on, on, on other issues. And you know, right now, the Bay Area, the last couple of years, people have been leaving. So you'd think that adding a whole bunch of new housing isn't the most pressing issue. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like that's, that's at the core of it. And I mean, in New York City, it's a huge problem, which New York City has had more of a rebound, more of a return of people. And um, housing prices here just in the city proper are insane. Uh, they, and whereas there's been at least some correction in San Francisco. In Europe, it's very fashionable to talk about the 15-minute city. I mean, is that going to be part of the sort of reinvention of downtown in some of these places? 
Well, I mean, in San Francisco, the the issue is that, and this is true in New York, although New York sort of has a couple of downtowns, but the best transit connections are all all sort of go through that downtown, the financial district and, and nearby areas. And so it's absolutely true that the the neighborhoods out in San Francisco are pretty vibrant and you can live a 15-minute um, lifestyle. But if you want to get to the other side of town, very often it ends up going through the middle. And so if that something's got to happen with that core. And I, I just don't know what it is at this point. I just wanted to chime in on the uh, reimagining down uh, the middle. I interviewed London Breed at our technology summit last week, and she just threw out, she just spitballed. She said, why are we all worked up about the, the empty mall, the Westfield Mall, which was taken as, you know, the death knell. Um, and she asked the audience, how many of you have shopped there in the last two, you know, even in the last five years? Very few hands went up. She said, where do you get your stuff? You go online, you buy it. So why are we flipping out about an empty shopping mall? I'm paraphrasing her very, very crudely, but, um, she said, why do, why do we need a shopping mall? Why, why don't we have a soccer stadium? So she kind of spitballed this idea, uh, which got picked up here in lots of memes. Um, and, uh, you know, then, every, of course, being San Francisco, everybody started piling on about what a terrible idea that would be and how could you. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I did that. Well, there, there was a little, she took a little, a little uh, you know, flight of imagination right there in real time with absolutely no forethought. But it, maybe it does take that kind of radical reimagination i mean the giants play downtown um you know why not why not major league soccer um so or football as we might even i'm sorry thank you yes the (laughs) spherical object yes yeah (laughs) But, well, that would be that would be very controversial. That would set us up for an enormous debate in my household. We live in the shadow of an enormous Westfield, but we also uh, where where at least one of my children spends a lot of their lives. But there are also some keen <laughs> football fans who could quite wouldn't mind having a new stadium. Wouldn't mind, but a very bad local team. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's that, that'll set the that settles conversation around the dinner table. Um, so finally, we have to always because we now live also in the shadow of the presidential and general election in twenty twenty four. I mean, I should ask both of you, but certainly Karen, um, what are the political? Clearly, the Republicans think that they can make score some points pointing to San Francisco as an example of, and indeed California as an example of of democratic rule run amok. Um, are there broader political implications from what's going on yes i think you can you can throw san francisco on the ballot pretty much anywhere you're running right and say is this what you want we're already seeing this we saw ron DeSantis come out there there does seem to be a little power pattern of stopping to record you know a uh, a horror scene uh, somewhere in san francisco and shake their heads and say oh my is this what you want um so san francisco is on the ballot um everywhere, you know, shorthand for um, for democratic uh, dystopia, if you're a Republican. Um, and uh, even if you're a Democrat, um, San Francisco right now, uh, this bastion of, you know, of tolerance and acceptance and um, creativity and social progress uh, is very hard to point to the social values that Democratic voters might might. Um, agree with uh, if you look at the some of the streetscapes so it's it's very tricky but i i think in a weird way you're going to see a lot more republican candidates here to record their ads and collect their money uh but certain but and maybe four or five percent of of the of the uh electorate will vote for them 
Well, it sounds like the mayor should increase the fees for filming on the street anyway. (laughs) For political ads, yeah. (laughs) You may want to cast the tin cup right there. And just a final question to you. Can you imagine any politicians, I mean, given that there's some serious economic consequences, is anyone going to be brave enough to tell people to go back to the office? I mean, obviously lots of people in New York have done that and in the financial sector pretty successfully. But politicians? Well, I mean, the mayor, Adams, here does that all the time, although he's fine. It's funny because in New York City, uh, and this was under de Blasio, his predecessor, they actually uh, required all city employees to come in five days a week, and they're finally relaxing that. Um, Yeah, that's a pop. I mean, the Republicans have this bill that they keep uh, bringing up to, it's got some great acronym, but it's in, in Washington to force federal employees to go back to work. So, yes, I think there's a slight partisan valence to the whole going back to the office thing because it's it's something that um, white-collar professionals are the ones who can work from home and they almost all vote Democratic these days. Karen Breslau, Justin Fox, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Stephanie. Thanks for having us. That's it for this episode of Stephanomics. Next week, we'll have more. In the meantime, you can get a lot more economic insight and news from the Bloomberg Terminal website or app. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, Yang Yang and Summer Sadi, with help from Abraya Rufin. Special thanks to Manus Cranny, Michelle Jamrisco, Kevin Varley, David Ramley, Karen Breslau and Justin Fox. Molly Smith is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Sage Bowman. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.